what is linked, centrally linked to this, this digital transformation, so to say, is, is the promise that um, technology can sort people better. Better identify and filter those who are seen kind of as risky or as unwanted and those who are seen as productive, uh, mostly economically productive in various ways. So um, I think this, this promise of better sorting and differentiating travelers and mobility is centrally attached to this digital transformation. borders have always felt infinite. The Schengen area just felt like a large assemblance of European cultures, freely accessible whenever desired. A true blessing, honestly. I never had to think about it any other way. I traveled from Denmark to the Netherlands, to Germany, to Austria, to Spain, lived and worked and studied in five different European countries. I left and I came back seemingly without anyone betting an eye. But as much as borders seemed dissolvable, almost redundant and fluid, this is of course not the reality of Europe's border infrastructure. And it is certainly not the equal reality of different persons, especially in Europe's border zones. So today we are going to explore the vast digital infrastructure behind Europe's border regime with Paul Trautmannsdorf. I'm a, a PhD researcher at the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University of Vienna. Paul is a doctoral fellow at the Austrian Academy of Sciences studying how border control and migration management have been shaped and transformed by large-scale databases trying to understand the complexities of the digital infrastructure in Europe. I was wondering if there was one main body of infrastructure, one agency or institution that dealt with all of the border-related issues in Europe. There are various IT systems and communication networks that are set up in the EU. Um, they contribute to uh, what has been called in, in, the, in, in, in the research as a a piecemeal formation of migrant surveillance over the years and um, that has increasingly shaped uh, the landscape of border control in Europe. Oh, and of course here I would say there are maybe uh, central bodies or central systems which I uh, am very interested in. Um, they all serve to uh, facilitate the apprehension of migrants. They, they store uh, their digital identities, their the data doubles so to say. Um, and they try to allow Schengen states to cooperate in border control by exchanging information. Um, and basically the aim is to target and identify 
uh, travelers that are uh, categorized as unwanted. One IT system which is kind of infamous is the Eurodac system, which exists since um, around 2000. It's, it's a biometric fingerprint system, um, and here you find uh, states gather data of asylum seekers. They digitally store these, uh, this data, and um, Eurodac was created to, or originally created to determine the, the country that is responsible for the application of asylum and make sure that um, asylum seekers cannot, can only apply once in, in one European country. Um, so it kind of forms the, the basis for what um, was called the Dublin Convention and, and thus also for, for Dublin deportations within Europe. It kind of pins refugees' mobility to the country in which they first entered. Even though there are already various different agencies operating within Europe that take care of various aspects of border management, there is a new border endeavor in the works that is called the Entry-Exit System, in short EES, and it has a very pragmatic yet extremely complex mission. The Entry-Exit System wants to store all entries and exits from this Schengen space. It's a very complex system um, which is going to be uh, massive if, it's, if it can be realized, it's, it's still unclear. Um, and also the entry exit system, it, it wants to uh, biometrically register all travelers who come into the Schengen uh, stay. Again, uh, one rationale uh, or uh, one, one, one main goal is to detect overstayers um, because a lot of uh, irregularized uh, migrants actually come very uh, come, come perfectly legal to the Schengen space and um, stay there after their visa has expired. Yeah? Um, so overstayers, so-called overstayers should be detected by making registration at exits also obligatory um, and prevent multiple applications for for visas and asylum. So the idea also behind is to interconnect an entry exit system with Eurodac, for example, so you could um, detect so-called multiple identities. So we can say that all of the agencies that are commonly known like Eurodac, Frontex, EU LISA, the visa information system and the potential entry exit system, they are all centrally linked to the European Union and to member states and authorities, but they can also be seen as autonomous entities in and of themselves. You can say that these they, they represent some sort of a compromise between the European Commission at the central level and member states. Um, and you see uh, agencies can be seen as the outcome of a kind of um, uh, power struggle also between the Commission and, and, and Member States. Member States have an interest, for example, to have an independent, the agency is not independent, but to have an, uh, an autonomous body who governs IT systems instead of having the European Commission with, of course, there with its own interests and, and um, with its own people and resources to take over all these systems. So you create, an, you know, for every problem you, you have in the European Union, such as a new IT systems, the best, best way, and I think this is part of the story of EOLISA, is to create an agency 
um, which has an, a management board where you're, you're also representatives of member states sit, sit there and decide you know, where to lead or where to take the agency, etc. So it's a kind of Europeanization of, of IT systems, but a very specific Europeanization that gives not too much power to the centralized institution that the Commission represents. Paul already addressed one of the main motivations of these infrastructures, that they collectively share, so to speak, namely the reduction or elimination of people potentially overstaying their legal visit in an EU country. A lot of these notions actually uh, form the basis or legitimize um, large-scale IT systems. Similar um, in, in a similar way, overstayers form the, leg uh, the legitimacy of uh, the visa information system, for example, also, again, to, to, um, to have a better overview of the travel history of migrants uh, for state authorities. That's, that's sort of the idea behind it. So one can say definitely that this concern uh, or this worry with overstayers has been uh, or has increased in the, in the past. Agencies like Frontex and Eurodec are widely known from infamous news reports and are unfortunately linked to countless humanitarian tragedies. We are going to explore another agency today that is largely unknown, however functions as a key knot, a key connection between various digital border infrastructures within Europe. The EU LISA agency, which is um, quite an unknown agency, but uh, this is an, a European agency that basically took over the operational management of the IT systems for the member states um, and, and, and took it over. Eurodac, for example, was taken over by EU LISA from the European Commission. EU LISA is uh, is more is less vis visible. It's you know, the, the central IT systems EU LISA manages um, are located uh, in a suburb of Strasbourg, interestingly. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a data center. IT systems for EU borders are here under the surface of the earth, uh, well protected by security measures. On the basis of this data centrally stored here, the author national authorities can actually have access to data and decide who to let in or who to reject. Or deport from the Schengen space. There is also a backup center of EULISA in Austria and they have their headquarters in Tallinn, Estonia. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit scattered. This also has political reasons, but um, the main people who, who work with the large-scale IT systems um, day in, day out um, are, are the technicians, kind of the experts of the EULISA EU agency in Strasbourg. Um, in the data center and kind of maintain and repair uh, the digital infrastructure of EU borders. EU LISA plays an integral part in the management of EU borders, but it is not as present as, for example, Frontex in the public discourse. This has a sort of practical reason concerning the specific roles that these agencies play within the infrastructure at large. The EU LISA is, of course, is a more um, more an operational actor behind computers, so to say, and, and working on IT systems. Uh, Frontex is, of course, working 
uh, on the spot at external borders. Um, but of course, both are uh, key actors in how the Europe, European border regime um, is trying to uh, manage or to govern migration. And, and both are kind of integral players. We can see the agency as a key no um, a nod between EU uh, institutions, national policymakers, and, and experts, um, and and also the industrial actors um, from the, from the IT and border security industry. Um, so th there's there's many more actors involved, not only strictly speaking the technicians and operators of EOLISA, um, but many more who are involved in designing and developing this, this border infrastructure. And here, of course, it's, it's not always very obvious and, and transparent um, how, how this uh, is, 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 is rolled out and developed. Concerns in regard to transparency of certain processes happening on the border, but also within the defining digital space are omnipresent and are largely based on the complexity of these agencies, their interoperability and their missions. So how transparent are these agencies, particularly EU-LISA, and what is largely unknown about their operations? The, the extent to which um, um, private actors or industrial actors are involved is not very transparent, I think. Um, also, um, for obviously, sort of the contracts between the agency and, and industrial actors are, are not transparent. Um, the agency itself, and you know, the is 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 much more transparent, I think, because it's an, a European institution and has to um, be transparent uh, towards, for example, parliamentarians in the EU, um, etc. Yeah, but but. The, the complexity and the network in which uh, the digital infrastructure um, is rolled out and developed is, is much less transparent. And this is also one of the um, yeah, aims uh, for me as a researcher to, to, um, to study and understand and also make visible. Considering the large investment and massive expansion of these digital infrastructures throughout Europe, it is sort of crucial to understand why this is all happening. What are the overarching motivations and intentions of these infrastructures? So one of the overall goals is of, of this growing digital infrastructure is to facilitate the work of, of authorities, member state authorities, and, and kind of also reinforce borders in EU member states, mainly by sharing information um, uh, or identity data of travelers and migrants. Um, so overall, I think there's, there's this trend that, that uh, leads um, European Union states to store and process an increasing amount of data, uh, capture and apprehend more people on the move, um, and store that ident their identity data for a longer period of time. Uh, it, it can be seen as this is sort of obvious from from observing the increasing build, or the, the buildup of increasingly more databases. And I think what is linked, centrally linked to this, this digital 
transformation, so to say, is, is the promise that um, technology can sort people better, uh, better identify and filter those who are seen kind of as risky or as unwanted and those who are seen as productive. Uh, mostly economically productive in various ways, be it uh, tourism, tourists or um, business people or whatever. So um, I think this this promise of better so sorting and and difference, differentiating um, um, travelers and mobility is um, is central to to centrally attached to this digital transformation. So one one can say it's it's a kind of machinery of distributing. And, and also stripping off uh, rights of mobility. An integral part of these infrastructures is data collection. And this is often where problems arise due to identification issues faulty identification techniques and processes and the consequences of these mistakes or inconsistencies can be massive. For example, fingerprint data is, is captured obviously in very different situations and environments in very different ways and treated differently by authorities. So um, you have, uh, for example, report, uh, a report, for example, by the Fundamental Rights Agency it says somewhere that more than half of the border guards have experienced inaccurate, incorrect, or, or not updated personal data. So they, they, they have asked border guards about how about the quality of data. Uh, for example, this, this was, I think, in, in the visa information system or in, in the Schengen information system. So you can have spelling errors, lack of documents, incorrect and or incomplete information. Um, interpretation of the data collection can also be lacking, etc. And I think the problem here is that, that of course, there's, there's uh, still little awareness of how such mistakes affect persons. Um, and also, there's not much clarity about, about measures in member states. So what happens when mistakes are identified? Who's responsible? Uh, how to correct them, etc. And, and there is a, is a uh, well-known record of, of cases of mistaken identities. Yeah? For example, that persons have the same name, um, data, place of birth, and then are mistakenly held at the border, even banned from a country. And I think generally, uh, if you take fingerprints, for example, uh, which have a massive impact um, on the reliable reliability of matching identities in the databases, um, the larger these databases become, the more mismatches you have. Um, because uh, even if you have a very low percentage of mistakes in, in, in or false matches, which every system has, um, if you take it against a database of 40 million people, still a very low percentage affects a very significant number of people. So um, this, this is also, um, I think, a, a problem. Yeah. In political narratives throughout Europe, border control is increasingly tied to the notion of national security. In order to understand the concept of national security in the application of the European Union, it is helpful to understand the Schengen area as something more than a border alliance between European nation states. Securitization is one, one 
I think, core process um, which defines and which makes borders so central to national security. 9-11 uh, attacks have, of course, been a defining moment. Um, but I think in Europe, especially, this process um, has also taken place before. Uh, um, if we look at the Schengen Agreement or the Schengen Convention, for example, the freedom of movement and the abolishment of, of internal boundaries or between between Schengen states has been linked from the beginning to, to so-called compensatory measures um, that try to uh, uh, safeguard security and so-called so-called illegal immigration. So it's kind of telling also that from the beginning of Schengen, you have a link, a very clear link in the convention between the free movement of goods, capital, labor within borders with the security measures that, that went hand in hand. So Schengen states do not only care about their national borders around their specific country, but also about the external borders of the EU. Suddenly, many uh, Schengen states have one common external EU border. Greece, for example, is not only Greece's um, national border, the Mediterranean Sea, but it becomes a, a border zone for all the European Union um, states, for example, right? So I think this is important to realize. Um, that is why um, also Germany, Austria, Central European states have such an interest in guarding the, the, the Greek border and, and turning the Mediterranean into a border zone. When talking about borders, there are so many different terminologies that are often used interchangeably. And there was one particular term that caught my eye, and that is the term border regime. As it has a sort of negative connotation, I was not sure if that is a term that is academically used or uh, descriptively used of the infrastructure and the management of borders. But it turns out that it is rather descriptive of the realities of borders in Europe. Yeah, I use the word border regime. I think border regime has a, a background in um, critical border and migration studies. Um, I, f I find it very useful. And, and, and so I kind of um, use it in that spirit because it points to uh, the variety and more complex composition of different, very different actors, very different um, logics, practices, technologies, that have to come together in order to fulfill this aim or idea to sort different mobile people, right, and categorize them and treat them differently. And I think um, I, I, I use this this notion um, also to stress that there's some sort of multiplicity and heterogeneity um, and also uh, resistance and struggle within that composition. There are various ways of managing data that is collected on different occasions. And there are also stark differences in how the data is treated, depending on the circumstance, but also the perceived intention of the mobile person. The case of Greece and, and the hotspot system, you know, it's, 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 I think, one example where you see that um, information technologies and, and kind of the, the circulation of data, they, they, they serve to basically not 
general mobility as we know it when we for example go through the airport or something we all have to we all we all being we are all screened and our data is channeled and, and processed but it's not to channel mobility here but it's mainly to restrict and arrest movement so we always have to you know see the the, the many sort of effects digital infrastructures can can have um, on people depending on how they are categorized. One of the main entry points for migrants and refugees is through the Mediterranean Sea. It's one of the most dangerous journeys and it often leads to the coast of Greece. This journey obviously comes with so much humanitarian weight, suffering and despair. And when they arrive, their data is almost immediately stored and processed. But I was wondering what role digital infrastructures play at the border entry and how they determine the future of the migrant or refugee in the specific case of Greece. I just want to say that, you know, I'm, I haven't been there actually, you know, observing or trying to speak or, or researching um, about these, you know, struggles and problems. Um, so I, I can just give you a vague account of how, how I think digital infrastructures matter here. If a person manages to arrive at the coast of Greece, actually the, the person has already transgressed a, one of the most deadliest border zones, the Mediterranean Sea. So this is already um, kind of a successful border crossing in that sense. And when they arrive, I think they're affected very quickly by, by a range of information infrastructures, I think, that, that seek to shape and condition their, their mobility, so to say. So uh, in Greece, I think um, we have also have to mention this this EU hotspot system, which is still in place, which and it, it you know became famous through the you know tragic Moria uh, event or the, the the burning down of the camp. And the hotspot system, I think, is an instrument of the border regime um, to subject a person to uh, yeah to to several infrastructures of control, uh, one could say, um, to make people. Um, make them governable and containable at a single site, right? And it also allows uh, various state and non-state actors to enter uh, the processes of registration, identification, data processing, all, all, all these, these processes actually. For example, you have EU agencies, um, we, we've mentioned Frontex already, but I think also uh, EASO, the European Asylum Support Office, or Europe, Europol, the, the European Police Agency. You have Greek authorities engaged in various practices, all with the aim to locate, detain, or also sort the person who arrived. One of the centralized systems that play a role upon entrance is Eurodac. The person's data is immediately stored and processed in this database and it later determines in which country the asylum procedure will take place. And also, this data was often the basis for the so-called Dublin deportations that have now been suspended. I think after learning about the digital infrastructures that play a role almost behind the scenes, the hidden borders that are the reality of many persons trying to cross borders, trying to flee or seek refuge somewhere else. It is really hard to simply look at the digitality of this infrastructure as it obviously affects and impacts lives to a great degree. There's a humanitarian um, duty for states 
which has been um, increasingly uh, reduced or at least ignored and which has to be uh, kind of filled by NGOs and other actors uh, and, and this is very important but I don't think you know you can uh, weigh the one thing and the other to, to have humanitarian aid and, and securitizing and criminalizing migration. Actually the, the, the current situation is not even close to such a thing it's even criminalizing um, the, the 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 aid and the humanitarian aid to to migrants if you look at what EU countries are doing. Yeah. It is important to note that these infrastructures can and are being used for valuable causes also in the humanitarian sense. This is something that can easily be forgotten when looking at the mere surface intentions and functionality that we explored in this episode. These infrastructures are not inherently bad, but they are built on long-standing and perhaps even intensifying views of a society that criminalizes migration, which makes them prone to neglecting these humanitarian aspects. But these technologies can also enable communication between migrants, enable movement and reunions, tracing people for more causes than simply for restricting and arresting movement. So this is something that I do want to stress also in the context, in the critical context of this episode. I, I noticed a word that you said and I, ca I kind of like, I don't know, it stuck with me when you said a, a success of border crossing, because it's, it's a nice way to put it. However, these technologies actually, they try to make that impossible. So this is sort of this balance between hoping that somebody will be able to, you know, get to a safer place or whatever whatever it is that their motivation is and then also valuing these infrastructures do you think that that is compatible or, or how how is your stand on that if, if you want to share that yeah i think nothing will change and i also think the um, the main purpose and goals of these information and digital infrastructures will not change as long as we kind of still continue to frame um, migrants and refugees and mobility, the reality of mobility as a threat to our um, national culture and national security. As long this will be, and, and I don't see um, a lot of uh, hope for change here, to be honest, um, but as long as we continue to frame mobility and sort of ignore the reality of mobility in our global world, um, as something that is not immediately an immediate threat to to our whatever standard of living, our culture, etc. We we will also not have any valuable information technologies that could sort of uh, uh, um, actually provide more security to the person um, who is on the move and and to kind of uh, enable a dignified form of receiving uh, mobile people. caring about this topic. I was so excited that Paul Tratmasov took the time to 
discuss this issue and share his knowledge on the current state of the digital infrastructure in Europe. I think it's such an interesting and important topic to learn more about. If you're interested in some more content and also in other topics that I discussed on Tumult, feel free to check out everything on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. There's also some content on Tumult's website at tumult.online and regular updates on Instagram with the same handle tumult.online. If you listen to former episodes, you hear me say at Tumult Podcast, but we have updated that. I'm so excited to be sharing more content with you in the upcoming months. Thank you so much for supporting Tumult and for reaching out for your engagement and your ideas that fuel Tumult and fuel my inspiration and motivation. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you and hear you very soon. Take care.